Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today, and a Happy New Year to everyone. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, you know, kudos to the Ravens for their win uh, yesterday. As always, we like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. Looking back at 2020, we had uh, 682 in-house claims handlers call in live, representing uh, 36 different surety companies, and 2,108 downloads of our podcast last year. So we ask that uh, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember, you can listen to one of our prior Surety Today episodes anytime at one of our multiple locations, Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today. And on our microsite at suretytoday.net. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we'll unmute at the end for any questions. As we start the uh, new year for Surety Today, we're in the process of planning out the topics for the coming months. So far, we're looking at a discussion with Bill McConnell at Vertex, scheduled for next month, a discussion with Dennis O'Neill with Beacon, a discussion with Julia Lean at uh, the Surety and Fidelity Association of America. We will cover, or we plan to cover, such topics as uh, CGL policies, bad faith, understanding the restatement, funds control, takeover agreements, executory contracts and bankruptcy, and issues in handling commercial claims. Of course, we'll also do a case law update at some point. And uh, if you have any ideas for Surety Today topics, please send them on to me by email or give me a call. Always happy to consider that. And I think some of these topics that we've got planned for this year were suggestions from folks. So today I'll be presenting on the topic of supersedious bonds. So when a judgment creditor obtains a monetary judgment against the judgment debtor, most jurisdictions permit the judgment creditor to immediately upon or shortly after obtaining the judgment to commence enforcement proceedings to collect on the judgment, regardless of whether the judgment debtor intends to appeal or not. Such enforcement proceedings may allow the judgment creditor to obtain liens on real or personal property and then to proceed to liquidate the judgment debtor's assets and property to satisfy the judgment. The judgment debtor, however, is not left without recourse and may attempt to stay the enforcement proceeding pending an appeal of the monetary judgment. So most jurisdictions authorize the judgment debtor to obtain a supersedious bond from a surety to stay the judgment creditor's enforcement proceedings while the appeal of the judgment is pending. Some jurisdictions refer to the supersedious bond as an appeal bond, while other jurisdictions distinguish between the two types of bonds. So when a jurisdiction recognizes the, the two different types of bonds, usually the appeal bond is, is normally to ensure the payment of costs of the court, while the supersedious bond guarantees the judgment creditor, if successful on the, uh, on the debtor's appeal, 
that ensures that, of course, that there'll be a source of recovery and collection after the appeal is concluded. The distinction between the appeal bond and a supersedious bond, however, is often obscured in some jurisdictions and in the case law, uh, which creates confusion. So today, uh, to avoid any confusion, I'm just going to be referring to the supersedious bond. The purpose of a supersedious bond is to stay the judgment creditor's execution of a final monetary judgment pending appeal by the judgment debtor. The need for the supersedious bond is twofold and applies to both the judgment creditor and the judgment debtor. First, the supersedious bond is necessary to protect the non-appealing party, the judgment creditor, from the risk that the monetary judgment may be unrecoverable from the judgment debtor and or its assets and property upon conclusion of the appeal process. Second, the supersedious bond is necessary to protect the appealing party, the judgment debtor, from execution on a monetary judgment by the judgment creditor prior to resolution of the appellate process. This protection obviously is important because the monetary portion of the judgment may ultimately be reversed in its entirety or at least reduced on appeal and to safeguard the judgment debtor's funds in the event of a reversal uh, or reduction, essentially to avoid that scenario where the judgment debtor would pay a judgment creditor, then win on appeal, and the judgment creditor could no longer reimburse for the money that was paid. So in other words, the, the, the supersedious bond, the purpose of it and the effect of posting that bond is to preserve the status quo while protecting the non-appealing party's rights pending the appeal. From the surety's perspective, however, a supersedious bond is simply a contract by which a surety obligates itself to pay a final judgment rendered against its principal under the conditions stated in the bond. Accordingly, as always, a surety must understand the nature and scope of the supersedious bond that it executes with its principal, i.e., you've got an RTFB. And you'll see that throughout this discussion. So first, let's focus on the nature and scope of a surety's liability and obligations on a supersedious bond in both federal and state courts. In federal courts, it's Rule 62D governs supersedious bonds in conjunction with applicable local district rules. It is well recognized, however, that no federal statute, federal rule of civil procedure or appellate procedure um, conditions the trigger of the surety's obligations under a supersedious bond. Rather, the express terms of a supersedious bond govern the extent to which a surety may be liable under or discharged from a supersedious bond. Indeed, the Supreme Court discussing a supersedious bond has recognized that the obligation of the sureties upon the bond is, strict, is strictissimi juris and not to be extended by implication or enlarged by construction of the terms of the contract entered into. In the state realm, Supersedious bonds are governed by each state's applicable law and terms of the bond itself. Indeed, unlike Federal Rule 62, many states impose some minimal operations guidelines for supersedious bonds that must be incorporated into every bond. For example, in Maryland, uh, there are several rules governing supersedious bonds, and they state a supersedious bond shall be conditioned upon the satisfaction in full of one, the judgment from which the appeal is taken, together with costs, interest, and damages for delay, if for any reason the appeal is dismissed or if the judgment is affirmed, or two, any modified judgment and cost, interest, and damages entered or awarded on appeal. In many jurisdictions, the courts have drafted their own form supersedious bonds, which have to be issued, and so you have to look at those bond forms to see what the terms and conditions are that the surety would be um, obligated under. So accordingly, a surety issuing a supersedious bond securing a monetary judgment entered by a state court must familiarize itself with the jurisdiction's rules 
the bond form governing supersedious bonds. It's important to note that in some jurisdictions like Maryland, both the trial court and appellate court rules of procedure govern those bonds. Thus, to fully understand the scope of a particular jurisdiction supersedious bond law, all the relevant rules in the statutes must be read together in conjunction with one another and the terms of the bond itself. So let's um, look at this next issue of jurisdiction. Regardless of whether a surety is operating in federal or state court, the surety must understand that by providing a supersedious bond, the surety is bound to pay up to the penal sum of that bond depending upon the results of the appeal. And the surety becomes subject to the jurisdiction of the court in which the supersedious bond is provided for purposes of the judgment creditor's enforcement of that monetary judgment against the supersedious bond. A surety must also understand that federal and state trial courts retain continuing jurisdiction to review the sufficiency of the supersedious bond throughout the appellate process. Although a surety is not liable on a supersedious bond in an amount greater than the penal sum, a surety should anticipate a judgment debtor's request to increase the supersedious bond amount if the penal sum of the supersedious bond becomes insufficient at some juncture in the appellate process. At that time, the surety may reevaluate its underwriting considerations to determine whether it's willing to increase the amount of the supersedious bond penal sum or face the prospect of paying on that bond if the judgment debtor is otherwise unable to obtain additional security. So in Beatrice Foods, a case we'll discuss in greater detail later, the damages award was increased on remand and the trial court ordered the judgment debtor to increase the penal sum of the supersedious bond if it wanted to continue the stay of the judgment on further appeal. The judgment debtor refused and the trial court then ordered the surety on the existing bond to pay the full sum of the, of the supersedious bond to the judgment creditor. So uh, let's look at the timing. And under Federal Rule 62, um, automatically a final judgment entered by a district court is stayed for 14 days um, and a supersedious bond is therefore not required during that 14-day period. But once that stay is over, the bond is then, is then required. Um, and the, the stay of a supersedious bond will become effective on the court's approval of the supersedious bond. In state court, the time for a judgment debtor to provide a supersedious bond varies by jurisdiction. In several states, there's no automatic stay of the judgment creditor's enforcement of a judgment, meaning that a, a judgment debtor will need that supersedious bond right away. In other jurisdictions, a stay of judgment enforcement uh, is is provided for under the rules for specific time periods. Still other states uh, stay a judgment creditor's enforcement of a judgment automatically upon noting an appeal and throughout the appellate pro process, thereby negating the need for a supersedious bond altogether. Both Maryland and the District of Columbia impose an automatic stay of execution on a monetary judgment for 10 days after entry of the judgment. Subsequently, a supersedious bond is necessary to further stay the judgment creditor's enforcement. In Virginia, that uh, stay becomes uh, 21 days after the entry of the judgment. So let's look at um, calculating the penal sum of the supersedious bond as the next issue. A surety's liability on a supersedious bond is limited to the penal sum on the face amount of the bond uh, in both uh, state and federal courts. Federal and state courts, however, differ in their approach to calculating that penal sum. So in federal court, uh, generally, the penal sum of the bond is required to total the entire amount of the monetary judgment, including any prejudgment interest, attorney's fees, costs, 
and one to two years of post-judgment interest at a rate set by statute. However, Federal Rule 62 is silent as to the specific amount of the penal sum of a supersedious bond. The local rules to certain district courts may set forth a method for calculating that penal sum of the supersedious bond. For example, Maryland Federal District Court local rules require 120% of the judgment plus $500 to cover the amount of cost of the appeal. And you'll see that, that kind of calculation in other states as well. Um, as on the state level, the penal sum of a supersedious bond in state court varies by jurisdiction, of course. Many courts take a, a simple approach and require a fixed percentage above the monetary judgment. Uh, for example, Alabama, Alaska, Colorado, Mississippi require 125% of the judgment. California requires 150% of the judgment. Other jurisdictions evaluate the appropriate amount of the penal sum on a case-by-case -case basis, but impose a ceiling on the maximum amount. So for example, Georgia, Indiana, North Carolina, they have a $25 million maximum on a supersedious bond, while Wisconsin has a $100 million maximum. In Maryland, the penal sum of a supersedious bond must be the sum that will cover the whole amount of the judgment remaining unsatisfied, plus interest and costs, except that the court, after taking into consideration all relevant factors, may reduce the amount of the bond upon making specific findings justifying the amount. Maryland rules also permit the parties to agree on a penal sum. I think that would be kind of hard to do in most cases, uh, anything less than the full judgment. Well, let's look at um, determining liability under a supersedious bond. At what point in the appellate process may a surety's liability on a supersedious bond be enforced? Or conversely, at what point in the appellate process may a surety be discharged on a supersedious bond? An analysis of the issue triggers a familiar refrain, the terms of the supersedious bond control. Accordingly, a ruling from a jurisdiction's highest court may not be required for a determination or resolution of the surety's liability or discharge from a supersedious bond. So federal rules in the federal court system, Federal Rule 62, again, is largely silent as to the operation of supersedious bonds. Accordingly, in the federal court, the surety's liability on the bond is governed exclusively, almost exclusively, by the express terms of the bond and the principles of contract interpretation. Generally, supersedious bonds create three sort of potential scenarios in the federal court. First, the supersedious bond language expressly could expressly secure the monetary judgment appealed from only a specified circuit court. So if you were in Maryland and you appealed a Maryland District Court decision, it might only protect you from a ruling up through the Fourth Circuit. The supersedious bond language might expressly secure the monetary judgment appealed from up to and through the United States Supreme Court or the supersedious bond language might fail to identify either a circuit court or the Supreme Court as, as the protection uh, limitation. Obviously, the best practices here requires that a surety should identify in the express terms in the bond which appellate court can trigger the surety's liability or discharge to avoid any uncertainty in the time and scope of the obligations at some point later in the process. So, Looking at that first of the three scenarios created by the bond language, uh, the case in, in Hicks v. v. Cato Company, the case out of the District of Colorado, uh, the monetary judgment appealed from was affirmed by the Tenth Circuit. The judgment debtor expressed its desire to seek certiorari to the Supreme Court. However, the judgment creditor moved to collect on the supersedious bond, and the court granted the motion. 
noting that the supersedious bond securing the stay was limited to the judgment debtor's appeal to the Tenth Circuit. Because that appeal had been concluded in the judgment, judgment creditor's favor, the mandate had issued, no further stay of execution was in place. The Hicks approach is consistent with the universal recognition by courts that the obligation of sureties upon supersedious bonds is strictus semi juris and not to be extended by implication or enlarged construction of the contract of the bond form. Thus, even though the judgment debtor in Hicks could have potentially prevailed at the Supreme Court, the mandate of the Tenth Circuit triggered the liability under the bond because the express terms of the bond only secured that judgment appealed from to the Tenth Circuit and not the Supreme Court. Thus, the exhaustion of the appellate process may not be a threshold requirement to triggering the surety's liability or discharge from a supersedious bond. So in sum, the supersedious bond that extends protection only through entry of a mandate by a federal circuit court prematurely exposes the judgment debtor to the risk of a supersedious bond is designed to mitigate the judgment creditor's inability to reimburse the judgment debtor if monetary judgments modified down, downward or even reversed at some later point. The surety therefore potentially faces a greater chance of incurring liability on the supersedious bond this liability may be triggered prior to the final exhaustion of the appellate process. Conversely, if the judgment debtor prevails in the circuit court, i.e. there's a reversal of the judgment, then the judgment creditor may also be stripped of the protections created by the bond. For instance, if the supersedious bond is discharged because the judgment debtor prevailed on appeal at the circuit level, yet the judgment creditor could potentially prevail on appeal of the Supreme Court and have the original judgment reinstated, judgment creditor may be unable to recover at that point in the process. In determining whether to provide a supersedious bond that limits the scope of security of the supersedious bond to a specific federal circuit court, the surety must weigh the risks and benefits of subjecting itself to only one bite of the appellate apple. The second of those three scenarios created by the bond language is not routinely addressed by case law. The general rule, however, is that the terms of the supersedious bond will govern its application. Accordingly, if a supersedious bond expressly states that the monetary judgment is secured through a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, regardless of the outcome at the circuit court level, the supersedious bond should still secure the monetary judgment until the U.S. Supreme Court either issues a mandate or denies a petition for writ of certiorari, thus ending the process. The final scenario created by the bond language or more accurately, in the absence of express language identifying a specific court, was addressed by the court, uh, the Southern District of New York, New York in Revlon versus Carson Products. In that case, um, on the judgment debtor's appeal, uh, reversed the judgment of attorney's fees awarded by the district court to the judgment creditor. The judgment creditor thereafter petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court for writ of certiorari. While the petition for the writ of certiorari was pending, the judgment debtor moved for a release of the supersedious bond in district court. Judgment creditor opposed, arguing that should the Supreme Court grant certiorari and reinstate our award of attorney's fees, it will not be insured against the possibility of a judgment debtor's financial inability to fulfill its obligations. In granting the judgment debtor's motion to release the bond, the court stated, first, plaintiff assumes that we have the power to maintain the bond simply because the appellate's decision may be reversed. A court of appeals judgment, it must not be forgotten, is entitled to presumption of validity. Far be it for us to presume, as plaintiff would have us do, that the Court of Appeals erred. A district court must ever must be ever vigilant of such hubris. 
court therefore held a supersedious bond securing the stay should be limited to the Court of Appeals. And that's in the circumstance where the bond didn't say one way or the other. A surety, therefore, should um, consider, uh, if possible, expressly identifying a specific federal court to which it agrees to secure the monetary judgment to avoid the risk of litigation over all these issues. At the state court level, the, the scope of the security provided by the supersedious bond is, is also governed by the terms of the bond, and therefore, you get the same kinds of scenarios uh, that we just talked about. Some jurisdictions, however, impose certain mandatory obligations on the surety that specifically address this issue. For example, in the Maryland rules regarding supersedious bonds, um, it provides that the bond will, in Maryland we have the Court of Special Appeals, which is the appellate court of right, and then the Court of Appeals, the highest court in the, in the state, which takes cases on certiorari, and the rules provide that the supersedious bond will remain in place pending the ruling by the, the highest court in Maryland. Uh, and so you'll find that in other jurisdictions as well. A, a surety issuing supersedious bonds to secure monetary judgment entered in state court proceedings must be familiar with the scope of the security that the express terms of the bond create and also any obligations imposed by applicable law to avoid any uncertainty regarding when liability is triggered. So let's look at, um, at different scenarios regarding the surety's liability under these bonds. First, the, the principal judgment debtor's appeal uh, is dismissed in its entirety. So it, it's well recognized that a surety's liability under a supersedious bond is triggered if the monetary judgment appealed from and secured by that bond is dismissed for any reason in both state and federal court. In fact, the applicable supersedious bond law in many jurisdictions expressly recognizes the surety's liability in that circumstance. Of course, this makes sense because if there's no appeal pending because it's been dismissed, uh, there's no challenge to the judgment and it should no longer be stayed, but rather it should be enforced. The next scenario, the, the monetary judgment appealed from is affirmed in its entirety. Equally well recognized in both state and federal courts is that a surety's liability under a supersedious bond is triggered when the monetary judgment appealed from and secured by the bond is affirmed in its entirety as to both liability and damages. Now it starts to get into, into some uh, gray areas a little bit where you've got sort of hybrid situations. So let's look at a situation where the judgment appealed from is affirmed in part and denied in part. A surety may be liable on a supersedious bond if part of the judgment on appeal is affirmed. In Rector versus Mass Bonding and Insurance Company, uh, a case out of the D.C. Circuit, the court addressed a hybrid situation in which the appellate court affirmed in part and reversed in part the appeal from judgment, which was comprised of a monetary portion and a non-monetary portion. In the underlying case, the plaintiff filed a lawsuit against the defendant who defaulted on two promissory notes. The defendant filed a counterclaim against the plaintiff. The district court denied the counterclaim and entered a money, money judgment in favor of the, of, the of the plaintiff on the principal's claim on the promissory note. The defendant appealed the monetary judgment and um, the defendant then also secured that by a supersedious bond. The defendant also appealed the denial of its counterclaim, uh, but the security did not, the, the bond did not apply to that portion of the appeal. So on appeal, the monetary judgment in favor of the plaintiff was affirmed in its entirety. The appellate court, however, reversed the denial of the defendant's counterclaim. Subsequently, Rector moved to enforce, the plaintiff moved to enforce the bond against the surety as to the monetary judgment that was affirmed on appeal. The district court denied that motion. 
on appeal of that decision, the district court's denial of, of, the, of the motion to enforce a supersedious bond, the, the appellate court noted that the portion of the original appeal, which was secured by the supersedious bond, the monetary judgment, was affirmed. The appellate court opined that when the judgment involved is made up of separable elements and there is a reversal as to one of those elements alone, the surety's liability is triggered on the element which is affirmed. Accordingly, the appellate court held the surety's liability under the supersedious bond was triggered when the secured portion of the plaintiff's monetary judgment was affirmed, even though another separable element of the district court's judgment was reversed. So, so Rector stands for the proposition that when an appeal encompasses multiple but separable elements, the separable element secured by a supersedious bond, which is affirmed in its entirety, may trigger the surety's liability. Let's look at a scenario where the, the monetary judgment appealed from is affirmed as to liability and entitlement on appeal, but the appellate court enters a revised damage amount. Generally, a surety's liability under a supersedious bond is triggered when a monetary judgment appealed from is affirmed as to liability and entitlement to damages, and even if the appellate court enters a modified damage award on appeal. It's important to note that the judgment revised, if it's revised upward, it still may not exceed the penal sum of the bond. In, uh, in Beatrice Foods, the court shed light on the reasons uh, for liability in, in this circumstance. Specifically, the court discussed the concept of substantial reversal, also referred to as prosecuting the appeal with effect, which is generally defined as prosecuting the appeal with success. The Beatrice Food Court explains why a surety's liability on the supersedious bond is not discharged upon a mere modification of the damages award, i.e. a reduction. The modification does not equate to a reversal of the trial court's finding as to either the judgment creditors entitled to damages or the judgment debtors liability for damages. The surety therefore must recognize that an appeal that results only in a reduction of the damages award is not necessarily a substantial reversal and does not automatically result in the surety's discharge from the supersedious bond. And uh, the next scenario, you've got the monetary judgment appealed from is affirmed as to liability and entitlement to damages, but the damages award is remanded for entry of a specific dollar amount as ordered by the appellate court. And so basically in the, in, in the last scenario, the, the amount was, was changed by the appellate court at the appellate level, and here you've got the case being sent back down and remanded for the entry of a specific amount by the lower court. And the courts have held, uh, again, in that scenario that the surety would remain liable because the, the, uh, the liability and the entitlement to damages was affirmed. It was just a question of the, of the amount. Um, the next scenario, the monetary judgment appealed from is affirmed as to liability and entitlement to damages, but the damages award is vacated and remanded to the trial court for recomputation or to correct apportionment of damages. A surety liability on a supersedious bond can be triggered when the monetary judgment is affirmed as the liability entitlement to, to damages, but the damage award is vacated and remanded to the trial court for recomputation of the damages or to correct the apportionment of damages. Courts uh, have consistently recognized that the vacation of the damage award is not predicated on a failure to establish entitlement to the damages. Rather, the amount of the damage award was calculated in error or inaccurately apportioned. As explained in Beatrice Foods, when an, when an appellee has proven that damages are due, 
and the remand is merely to determine the proper quantum of injury, then it is not unreasonable that the bond remain effective during this recalculation period. Put another way, when an appellant has merely succeeded in having the case remanded for recomputation of damages, it would be a stretch to say that the appeal was substantially successful or that the judgment was substantially reversed. In, in Morrison Knutson versus ground improvement techniques, uh, the court confronted an issue regarding the apportionment of damages which were affirmed on appeal. Uh, MK, a federal contractor, sued its subcontractor, a ground improvement techniques, GIT, for default. GIT counterclaim for wrongful termination. Trial court entered a judgment in favor of GIT on its wrongful termination claim. MK, MK appealed and posted the bond. On appeal, the 10th Circuit affirmed MK's liability but vacated all of the damages awarded. Certain categories of damages were vacated for failure to prove entitlement to damages, and those categories were remanded for a retrial on the entitlement issue. Although GIT proved entitlement to the remaining categories of damages, the appellate court nonetheless vacated those damages and remanded because the trial court failed to use a special verdict form, and the appellate court could not untangle the categories of damages for which there was sufficient evidence as compared to those which needed a retrial. On remand, the surety sought a discharge of its bond, arguing that the vacation and remand substantially reversed the appeal from monetary judgment. The Tenth Circuit rejected the surety's argument and held, this, case, this case's unique procedural history reflects that MK's liability was affirmed and several categories of damages, although not affirmed, were vacated merely because of a procedural error. This case lies somewhere between a remand for, re for mere recalculation of damages and one in which no sum of damages was properly proved and the entire judgment was vacated. We hold, therefore, that the supersedious bond is still enforceable because MK failed to prosecute its appeal to effect. Thus, the Morris-Knutson Appellate Court remanded in part to simply reapportion the damages to award the judgment creditor only those damages proved at the original trial. Accordingly, the surety's liability on the superseded bond was triggered and, um, for, the, for, the, for the categories of damages that were not reversed on appeal. So prior to seeking a discharge on a superseded bond, because of an award of damages was vacated, the surety should ascertain whether that vacation was predicated on issues regarding the judgment creditor's failure to prove entitlement to damages or merely procedural issues. Um, let's see, here we are. We are out of time. Of course, um, when uh, when there is an affirmation of the uh, the underlying judgment on appeal, the surety is is potentially immediately responsible. However, if the principal satisfies the judgment, then obviously the surety is released on the bond. You got to be careful there uh, that that all of the amounts are are satisfied by the principal, including additional costs, interest, and so forth. Um, so let's see, we are out of time here, and I think that covers it for now. What I will do um, is is post on our website and on the, uh, the, the suretytoday.net um, site a copy of a paper that was done uh, by one of uh, my partners a little while back regarding this issue, and so you can you can see the discussion with all the case sites and footnotes. 
So before I um, open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, February 8th at 1230, and I will be joined by Mr. Bill McConnell from Vertex, so be sure not to miss that. Uh, my firm is hosting a free virtual event on January 14th from 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. It's a Q&A with uh, two cyber specialists from the Bellwether Group, and this is all about you know, everybody's working from home, and you're working on your, your home networks, and, and you've got, you know, Zoom going, you've got your, your router and your internet provider, all that stuff is going on. How safe is that? How secure is that? And so that's what uh, our experts are going to be talking about, and, and these folks are really, truly experts. Uh, they work for the NSA, and they were involved in the cyber command where, you know, they would go over to foreign countries and mess up all their computer stuff. So these guys know what they're doing and, and they can really give you some pointers or some help on these issues of just how secure is your home network now that everybody's working from home. So again, thanks so much for joining us today. We wish you and your, and your colleagues a safe and, and happy new year. And I will unmute the line. So if you want to join in on that uh, virtual event, just shoot me an email and we'll give you the, the link. Okay, we're in talk mode now. So if you want to ask any questions, any questions? We're quiet in 2021. All right, everybody, I appreciate it. Again, wish everybody Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.